I often, I spend a lot of time wondering if this is it. If this is the year that I can create this show without wondering whether or not it's going to be feasible tomorrow. Because honestly, you know, when I started, I was pretty foolhardy about it. I said, I'm going to do this full time. I'm going to quit my job. I hated my job. And I'm going to spend some of my savings and, and just see how this goes. At worst, it was a, a little personal art experiment. And then, you know, it won uh, an iTunes award, one of the best shows of 2014, which I make this show in my closet. I, I still make it in my closet. I, I make it at a desk that uh, if you were to tap it, it would fall over. And after winning an award like that, you know, I, I felt like I was off to the races. I had to do this, you know. Of course, this is still a podcast and podcasts are in kind of a funny place because they're, they're not like music. You can't charge 99 cents an episode, really. You, you give them away for free or nobody listens. So even with that award and a bunch of recognition, it didn't matter how many listeners I got if I couldn't pay the bills. I'm enamored with the stories that make us us. But the only way that this show can subsist is with your support. Those big shows, the, the ones that, that ask you for money to, to make you know a small monthly donation of, say, $25, they don't need your money. Not, not really. The difference between a dollar there and a dollar here is that I can take that dollar, I can take the bus, and I can go meet someone else to actually you know, tell a story on this show. And if I can ask for just a tiny modicum of your time, visit patreon.com slash the laps and, and please consider it. I had a whole bunch of new content that you can only find there as well. Uh, you can watch a short video of the 3,000 unmarked bodies that are across from my new apartment. And even if it's only a buck, now you get access to the Lap Storytelling Club, which is a secret Facebook group where you can interact with other fans, you can interact with myself on a daily basis, uh, and guests of the show. We're all there. It's a really great place to keep in touch. If you love the Laps, if you think it's worth a dollar to keep around, become a patron at patreon.com slash the Laps. Thank you, and please enjoy the show. With that said, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Lap Storytelling Podcast, where we tell true stories gussied up. I'm your host, Kyle Jest. And today we've got a returning storyteller, Mark Redmond, who, uh, if you follow shows like The Moth or Risk, has been rather prolific of late. He's made appearances all over the place, uh, telling stories about the people whose lives he's touched and, and the people who've touched his lives through his work. But this is the first time he's ever really talked in depth about how or why he does his job. If you don't know or don't remember what he does for a living, don't worry about it. Consider this the Mark Redmond origin story. I'm calling this one Marge. See with your ears, this is The Lapse. If you talk to people who have my kind of role and ask them how they got into it, they will often tell you that they themselves, when they were a teenager, grew up in poverty or that they had been a gang member at one point or that they had been addicted to drugs and alcohol. That is not my story at all. My dad grew up in the Depression, single mom with five kids, and he knew that, that education was what lifted him and his siblings out of poverty. So there was never a question that we were going to go to college. That wouldn't have gone over well. <laughs> so I had applied to the best schools in the country. I was a good student. So Yale, Princeton, uh, Williams, Hamilton. I remember an interviewer said to me, you're either going to get into all these schools or none of these schools. Well, I got into none of those schools. Villanova was my backup school, and I had a cousin who was already there. 
you had to declare from going in, were you going to be in the nursing school, the engineering school, arts and sciences, or business? And I remember having <laughs> to check off a box and saying to my dad, hey, which, which box should I check off? He worked down by Wall Street. He did very well for a guy who went to night school, you know? So eh. I was the oldest of five. Why don't you put down business? All of us studied business. I was right from the get-go at the top of my class. Graduated in May, and I started the day after Labor Day in September 1979. It was a job on Madison Avenue with a multi-billion dollar corporation, and it was in one of these training programs where they only take like 10 people, the future vice presidents and presidents of this company. They're gonna train you for like three years and rotate you through different parts of the company. Six months in a sales office. Six months in pensions. Six months in marketing. Six months in finances. Six months in the computer division. We'll help you select what area we want you to specialize in. About a year goes by, Mark works his way up or at least alongside the corporate ladder. One day or another, he finds himself back at Villanova visiting a friend of his. And she said, hey, while you're here, the campus ministry has this volunteer day. Do you want to tag along? She took me to this thing, and it was different presentations by different nonprofit groups. Mary Knoll, they were looking for people to go and do missionary work. Jesuit Volunteer Corps, they were there looking for volunteers. And there were two people there from Covenant House. Covenant House was a shelter for homeless teenagers in New York City in Times Square. They showed a little film, and then this woman gave up to give a talk. She looked like a suburban grandmother. Lily Pulitzer pants, Papagallo shoes. She looked like she belonged on a golf course. So I went up afterwards and said, hi, I live in New York City. I'd like to come and see your place. I might be interested in volunteering there, you know, one night a week. Times Square is just a few stops over. Why not? It was the center of prostitution, the center of pornography. It was very violent, high crime. In the 1980s, you ran through Times Square. Today, it's all Hard Rock Cafe, Disney. It was not like that in 1980. I took the subway there, hustled my way across to where Covenant House was. You know, it's funny, like it portrayed itself in this film as like this very down-to-earth, you know, and and very quaint structure, but it was actually, I think it was a Sheraton Hotel that they bought, kind of big and institutional. They had almost 200 kids there every night. Inside the building, sporting her perfectly coiffed white hair, Mark is greeted by little old Marge Crawford. And she gives him the grand tour, all the facilities, maybe even more than is necessary for a once a week volunteer. If you want to come and volunteer here one night a week, we'd love to have you. But you know, there's a group of us, about 40 of us, who've made a one-year commitment to be full-time volunteers. To live here and work here for $12 a week, And if you want to do that, you need to go on a one-week orientation. And in my mind, I'm like, what what are you talking about? In fact, I have an opening in May. I'll put you down for that. 
wait a minute, lady. There is a world of difference between me coming here one night a week and handing out brownies and quitting my job and interrupting all my life and plans. This is not in the Mark Redden plan at all. I didn't say that to her. I'm just thinking this. I can still remember if I closed my eyes, literally remember being in that office with her and breaking into a sweat. But I remember like soothing myself in my mind, like don't panic, don't panic. It's so easy to get out of this. Let her put your name down there. This can be fixed in one phone call. I just have to make one phone call to her at some point between now and May and tell her I'm not coming. It's so easy. In the meantime, at least, it's just Tuesday nights for Mark. Instead of taking the uh, Lexington Avenue line, I would take the R train. A uh, person who I worked with at Metropolitan Life, he saw me on the R subway, and he said, what are you doing on this subway? I said, oh, I'm getting off at Times Square. I wasn't telling anybody what I was doing. I was going to help uh, homeless and runaway kids. And he gave me this smirk, because he knew that was the center of prostitution. I would get off at Times Square, holding my breath, walking through, hoping I wasn't going to get mugged, make it to Covenant House, duck into a bathroom, and change into jeans and a T-shirt. All of the kids were African-American or Hispanic. All of them came from the most poverty-stricken, low-income, high-crime areas of New York City. I grew up in the white suburbs, and even in college, Villanova was a very white, middle-class, upper-middle-class school. What am I doing here? What can I really do? I'll never forget the first time I did it. They would send me on field trips. So they'd say, hey, Mark, take these 10 kids, uh, you know, put them on a the subway, here's Token, take these 10 kids to this theater, here's tickets to go see this performance. We went to the show, we're coming back in the subway, Mark does a quick head count. One, two, three, four, five, six. Mm, nope. I lost two of the kids. I walked into the supervisor's office petrified and thinking, oh my God, they're not going to let me volunteer again. I went up and I was like, I only came back with eight. And the guy, the supervisor said, You left with 10, you came back with 8? That's pretty good. (laughs) That's pretty good, 8 out of 10. We usually lose way more than that. To send one part-time volunteer off with 10 kids on the subway in New York City is not exactly, you know, the wisest thing in the world. I don't know, like over time I just felt like I really started to enjoy it. Even though I was different from the kids, I had nothing in common with them. I could see myself doing this at some point in the distant future. I could see myself doing this. Let me go on this one-week orientation. I'll just go on it. It'll be something. I'll lie to them at work. I'll tell them I'm I'm, uh, going on vacation somewhere, and I'll, I'll go and do this. I called and said to Marge, If you have an opening earlier than May, maybe I'll go on that. And basically, you live there for a week, you worked an eight-hour shift with the kids, you had dinner with the other volunteers, and lived their life. I still tell people it's kind of a mystery to me what that week was like, but by the end of the week, 
I remember going back to work right after that. And it was some kind of like senior vice president, you know, giving us a talk to me and the other members of my group. At $30 billion in assets. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thanks to everyone in this room. By the end of this decade, we can be at $40 billion. That is your goal, people. You and everyone in this room, you can make that happen. And I remember sitting there thinking, it's just not me. That's not what I want to dedicate my life to. I don't. I'd rather be working at Covenant House and trying to help those kids. So I resigned. My family was shocked. My friends were shocked. Everybody was shocked. These beautiful three-piece suits, I donated all of them away. I had a car. I gave that to my brother. Moved into a building that was roach-infested across from a strip parlor and a crack house. Honestly, it felt like the sanest thing I'd ever done in my life. I got to know this woman, Marge Crawford, really well. Marge Crawford was from a wealthy upstate New York family. Her deceased husband had been a state Supreme Court judge. You know, most people in this position wouldn't be living in Times Square working with homeless kids. They would be in a golf course in Florida, relaxing. I also found out she was this radical activist. She uh, invited me after only a couple of days at Covenant House. She said, oh, we're going to a little rally for peace. You know, you want to come along? I was like, sure. And I find myself standing in front of the Riverside Research Institute, where they design nuclear bombs. And I'm holding a sign that says, you can't hug a child with nuclear arms. My big worry is somebody I used to work with, I am petrified, so one of them's going to see me. She says to me, oh, I'm going out to Washington, D.C. this weekend. I was like, oh, good for you. Who are your friends down there? She said, no, a group of us are going to be protesting at the Pentagon, and I'll probably be thrown in jail. So she came back like a week later. Marge, how was it? Did you get arrested? Did they put you in prison? She goes, yes. They put me in a prison with other women. Most of them were women uh, prostitutes. But I brought some extra rosaries, so I taught them how to say the rosary. She was just too much. I was kind of her boss, but, you know, nobody could be Marge's boss. Only God could be Marge's boss, frankly. We didn't talk about the kids so much. I know I talked about some of the frustrations I had with Covenant House and the model. And, you know, most of these kids were in the foster care system. They didn't have families or their parents were in prison or their parents were missing or their parents were addicted to drugs. And in New York State at that time, foster care ended at 18. So you had a lot of kids ejected from that system and just hit the streets and become homeless. Now you're taking someone who doesn't have a high school diploma, doesn't have marketable job skills, and you're trying to help them find work and get a place to live. It was a short-term stay, you know? It was pretty much 30 days, and then you got to hit the streets. And that's a very, very difficult task. I talked to some people Inside Covenant House and outside in that field, and every one of them told me, if you're really serious about doing this, you need to go to graduate school. So he does. 
full scholarship at NYU, finishes in a couple years. And yet... Never went back to Covenant House. The kind of work that I do now in Vermont is very different. To try and solve the problems these kids have in 30 days is, is pretty... That's very, it's really impossible. As for Marge, she has made a lifetime commitment. She plans to keep it. And her and Mark, they catch up about once a year. She would have to go for dialysis at least once a week. She still stayed there. She's not in great health. And she's, you know, living in a terrible area in a tiny little room, uh, making 12 bucks a week. I think she gave up the work. I think she, 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 she did like a little newsletter that would go out to all the former volunteers. I think she kept doing that. But she had to hand over the reins of the orientation to somebody else, you know? By like year eight or nine and ten, her health really started to go. I remember she had cancer. We thought that was it. She overcame the cancer. Then she fell and broke her hip. So I thought, well, that's it. And she overcame, you know, it was one thing after the other, but you could definitely see her energy go down, her motor skills. She was definitely failing in those last few years. You could see that. I get the call one day. That night, I went, took the subway, still crummy Times Square, the crummy little tenement building. Out her bedroom door, down the hallway, even around the corner, there's a line of people all there to say goodbye to Marge. It looked like awake, except the person was still alive. Whoever was kind of ushering people in whispered to me, you know, you got to be quick. She's pretty weak. So two minutes max. She was definitely conscious, fully conscious, you know. She said to me, you know, so what are you doing with yourself? I said, well, I'm running this program in Brooklyn for homeless boys. She said, good for you. You're still doing God's work. Well, you know, you were the one who got me involved in this racket 10 years ago. And she laughed. She said, it was the Holy Spirit. It wasn't me. It was the Holy Spirit. I don't remember what I said. It was short, but I know I just thanked her. I just thanked her for what she had done and for the influence that she had been in my life. She had made a commitment to give her life to the poor, and she stuck with that right to the end. Her funeral was held a few days later, right at Covenant House. We had a chapel where all the volunteers lived, where she had prayed and gone to Mass, you know, thousands of times. And uh, it was right in there in crummy little Times Square. It was just packed. It was packed with all the people she had known. Her body wasn't cremated. She was in this simple pine casket. This must, it was just pine wood. This casket probably cost 
$200 to put together. There was nothing ornate about it at all. It was a pine box, which I've said to my wife now, that's how I want to go out. <laughs> if you don't cremate me, I want to go out in a simple pine box like Marge Crawford. And at the very end, they went to wheel her casket out into Times Square where there were still prostitutes, strip clubs. They slowly wheeled her casket out there and it was total silence and there was a man in the back of the chapel. When the saints go marching in, you could hear a pin drop. I'm starting to choke up telling you about it. And uh, it was just so beautiful. Nobody said a word. Marge's son was there. I knew him. And I went up and I said, God, that was so beautiful, that saxophone player playing that. Where did you find him? And he said... Yeah, I took the subway here today, and when I got off the subway, there was a guy playing the saxophone looking for money out on the subway platform. And I went over and said to him, hey, if I give you $40, will you go to my mother's funeral and play when the saints go marching in? I said, man, Marge must have loved that. He said, I'm sure she did. She just, it's funny, I asked somebody once, this is before she had died, and I said to somebody else, what is it about Marge that all of us are so attracted to her and enamored of her? And this woman said, Marge doesn't judge. She doesn't judge. She accepts every person for who they are and where they're at in life. And I think that was really true. I wouldn't have spent the last 20 plus years if not for Marge Crawford. To be good at the work with kids like this, I think you have to have that kind of attitude and spirit. And I think I just picked up on an earnestness and a sincerity in her. You know, like you got what you saw. That kind of authenticity is kind of rare in our world. Now I think it's very rare in any age, in any generation. I think that's what drew me to her. That story again was shared by Mark Redmond. You can listen to more of his stories on his own podcast, So Shines a Good Deed. Feel free to track him down on The Moth and Risk as well. He is a well-spoken man. He gets around, huh? A massive thank you to this month's executive-level patrons, Leslie Miller, Lorinda Green, Daryl Kane, Cindy Crines, Jennifer Cherney, Bren McDonald, Antonio De Silva, David McCaw, Haley Burrows, Rob Holcomb, David Gaddy, Matthew Gibson, and Patrick Freeburn. You can help for as little as a dollar and get access to the Lap Storytelling Club at patreon.com slash the laps. If you have a story to tell, and the truth is you probably do, you need to get in touch with me. I am at stories at the laps.org. You do not have to be a practice storyteller. You never have had to have done this before. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Laps Podcast for updates on the show and sometimes myself. My name is Kyle Jest, and this was The Laps. Thank you so much for listening.